Hi. Some of you, if you're new this morning, you may not uh, know who I am, but my husband, Dave, is the senior pastor here at K2, and he's out of town, so you get me. Um, <laughs> I'm glad somebody's excited. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I was sitting there listening to that song, you know, I want to be that guy, and I thought, I don't want to be this guy right now. I don't want to be this girl on stage right now. Um, um, it is a, it's, we'll talk more about this, but um, serving in this way is, is uh, I really admire my husband for it and how he can do it week after week. So, um, yeah, not exactly the classic opener for a church service. Um, but we really think that, that all of us have, if it's not that guy that gets overpaid and gets the girl, there's somebody in your heart or somebody in the world that you think, man, if I could just be like that person, like that, that is great, you know, it, and it's a different picture for every single one of us, I think. For me, it's the mom who grinds her own wheat, runs marathons, and starts five MPOs in her spare time. They're out there, right? They're on Twitter. They're um, this mythical mom who doesn't yell at her kids, and she's helping women in Africa in her spare time while her children eat organic. Like, I don't know how that happens. But, but when I think of um, kind of a standard, a... Um, more on the worldly sense, <laughs> a standard of somebody that sometimes I think I need to live up to in order to be great. That's where my mind goes. Where does your mind go? Today we're going to talk about greatness because Jesus has a way of taking ideas like that, things like that that we put ourselves under, um, and just flips them upside down. He rearranges everything in our lives, in our hearts, in our mental furniture, and how we think about the world. He just is the great rearranger. And today we're going to talk about that. Um, but before we start, we'd better pray, uh, if you'll join me. Jesus, thanks so much for every um, person who is here right now. Um, again, I thank you that... You sit with each person here, and you are at work right now um, in our lives. I just pray our hearts would be open to your word. Help me, God, to serve um, and just share your word um, in a way that's clear. And I just trust your Holy Spirit to apply it to our hearts so that each one of us can leave today um, one step closer to you. Thanks, God. We just love you, and we pray in your name. Amen. Well, so I was sitting with David a month ago when he um, realized that he would not be here this morning, and he was scheduled to speak. Um, and, and I was, he realized, hey, I'm not going to be here to speak. He looks up. I'm sitting there. He's like, I've got a great idea. So um, that's how this happened. Um, and it was interesting because I um, people ask me if I like to teach. Um, I do not know how to answer that question because I like to see Jesus do great things and I 
I love being with you, but I never like the process. And so when he asked me to speak, my initial gut reaction is, oh. But then he told me what it was about. And I couldn't say no. Um, because I have to tell you, I really actually do believe <laughs> what I get to talk about today. You know, some things we believe in a, um, we believe them, but not really. Um, or maybe just not entirely. <laughs> or um, we believe things in a sort uh, pretty much most of the time, I think so kind of way. Um, <clears throat> but when we're tested or when things go awry or the rubber meets the road, we realize we probably need some more convincing. <laughs> and um, I think there are a lot of things as Christians in the faith that we believe that way. I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, but man, God, you're gonna have to keep convincing me of this one. Then there are things we believe at our core. <clears throat> They're so primary in our thoughts and in our gut that we just unreservedly, we believe them. And we believe them in such a way that we don't need convincing, the opposite is true, you would not be able to convince us otherwise. You would have to work really hard and it's just not even possible. That is how deeply I feel about the message today. So what do I believe? What are we talking about? I believe that in God's economy, to be great is to be meek. That meekness is not weakness. That serving is far greater than being served. That strength under control is a million times more powerful than strength unmanaged and unleashed. That God intends to make great those who are least, less, and nothing in the eyes of the world. We're going to look at um, a passage in Mark and um, where Jesus, we're, I'm going to kind of walk through this passage to illustrate those things. We're going to start in um, chapter 10, verse 32. Um, we're going to read the first three verses uh, to start out with. So they, meaning Jesus and his disciples and probably a collection of other people and women and just the people, the gang, his gang, were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking on ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen. Um, so what's the big deal about Jerusalem? If you don't haven't read much of those scriptures, you wouldn't know this, but Jerusalem was the place where the guys who wanted to take him out lived and had set up camp, and they were ready to take him down. There's this ongoing crescendo in the last three years of Jesus's life where the, the, the men in charge, um, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, as well as the Gentile leaders, were ready to take him out. They just couldn't figure out how to do it in a way that wouldn't damage their reputation with the people. 
but it was very clear that they were ready to take him out. And it says here that the disciples were amazed and fearful because Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And as I was reading this, I just pictured this. Um, it's kind of like they're walking behind him and they're like, Jesus is sticking it to the man. Like, oh man, he keeps telling us he's going to die, but look at him. Like, he's just He's just walking. He's just going. In another scripture, it says Jesus was set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. Um, and he knew. He knew what he was walking into, even though they didn't get it. And so they're back there going, he's all, he's all flint-faced and cool. Like, you go, man. And they're just kind of, I think, just freaking out. But you know from the rest of the scripture we're going to read, they still didn't get it. But they knew Jesus was walking into danger without fear. And they were shaken in their boots. But they, I know that they were thinking, I don't know what's going to happen, but it's going to be good. This is, this is unbelievable. This is exciting. He's all William Wallace in this. Um, so they're going to Jerusalem. <clears throat> and he, he pulls them aside. He, he knows what they're thinking, so he addresses it straight on. Verse 33, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they'll condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, and spit on him, and scourge him, and kill him, and three days later, he will rise again. So, in the, the gospel that Mark wrote, his account of the story, this is the third time Jesus has point blank said, the Son of Man is going to be delivered, killed, and rise again. Um, but this is the most graphic. Um, you can even sense a crescendo in his sharing of this with them. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise again. Now, if you were with somebody you loved, you admired, who you'd been serving and following as a rabbi for three years, and he's telling you, we're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. By the way, when he says the Son of Man, he often uses that when he's talking about his sufferings because it's the term that most identified him with us so that when he suffered, we knew he's suffering for us. Um, so anyway, he's, he's gonna die. He, he keeps telling him this. Everybody can sense the tension rising. Everybody knows that something is coming to a head, even if they don't know what it's going to look like. Another passage says they assumed that the kingdom of God would appear immediately. They were just ready, you know. Um, <laughs> if you were with this person, and you knew you only had maybe this last one walk with them, and you wanted to pull them aside and have a chat, what do you think you would do? I can tell you what two of the disciples did. Read on. Verse 35. James and John, two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. <laughs> okay. First of all, if you can get over the, okay, the ludicrousness of the demanding nature here, Jesus says to them, well, what, what do you want me to do for you? They said, grant us that we may sit on one on your right and one on your left in your glory. In ancient times, if you couldn't be king, 
If you could be the one on the right and the left, you, it was the same thing. You had the authority, everything. Basically, they chose this moment to pull Jesus aside and say, hey, hey, when you die, can we have all your stuff? Like, but they didn't think he was gonna die. They thought his glory would not be through suffering, which we always think glory does not have to come through suffering, but they, but they did. It just, when I first read this, I was so haunted by the, what to me felt like such insensitivity to the moment. Um, but you know, I started making excuses for them. I wrote some of them down. First of all, um, Jesus often, we get record in scripture, he often asked people, what do you want me to do for you? This was a common thing for Jesus. And maybe he had never turned to James and John and said, hey, what do you want me to do for you? And so it was natural for them, this might be the last that they have with him, it was natural for them to say, hey, we want you to do whatever we want too. You know, you're doing it for everybody else. So, um, so it was common for him. I think that um, it shows that they were confident enough in his affection that they were bold, like kids, which according to Jesus is a really good thing. Um, they had the audacity to trust that he loved them enough that they could just say whatever they felt like saying. <clears throat> I think it also speaks world of what Jesus had been like. He had been such a servant to them that this request did not seem out of place. And if you wanna think more about that, refer back to last week's sermon. But here's the real excuse. This one really made sense out of it for me. So Matthew also tells this story. Matthew um, tells it uh, a little bit differently though. Um, as all of us would if we were telling a story about one thing, if we'd seen it, we would share it differently. He talks about it and, uh, and what he says is that James and John were accompanied by somebody. Do you guys know who that is? Their mom! Of course their mom was there. In fact, according to Matthew, she's the one who sat Jesus down and said, I want you to do this for my boys. All of a sudden, it makes sense, right? This is the first soccer mom. <laughs> but um, whether it's the mom or James and John, who I love, I want to stop right now and just point out I think that we approach God like this all the time. We're so sure as evangelical Christians of God's unconditional love and favor that we barge into the scene and totally misperceive the plot and we sit him down in prayer and say, hey God, bro, thanks for loving me and choosing me and yada, yada, yada. Now I want you to do whatever I ask you to do for me and my friends. We have no clue what's going on around us. We have no clue what is going on in our lives. But we're really good at trying to tell him what to do and complaining when he doesn't do it. So, you know, um, the other thing, the other excuse we can make for them is um, According to Luke, the disciples, 1834 in Luke, the disciples did not understand any of these things. 
When Jesus told them these things, um, it was hidden from them. They didn't comprehend these things that were being said. I read that and I think, how could you not get it? The guy said, I'm going to die and raise the, like, but they didn't get it. And, um, and before we keep reading, I want to say this too. When I say, you know, we totally don't know what's going on in our lives. We misrepresent, we misinterpret all the time. Um, here's what I know. Um, I know I just lost my train of thought. Sorry. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. How many times does God have to say something to you before you get it? <laughs> I mean, seriously. We hear something, and we hear something, and then we go hear another sermon, and then maybe our friend talks about it, and then 10 years from now, we hear it again. And then later on in life, we're reading the Word, and we read it again, and doggone it, it's been 30 years, and the penny finally dropped. <laughs> I get it. The things of God are a mystery to us finite people. And um, in the context of being finite and being somewhat clueless, I think we all um, misunderstand things. And in this passage, we see that what we most chiefly misunderstand is what greatness is. All right. Okay. <clears throat> so let's read on. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? I wonder how tongue-in-cheek that was a little bit. I wonder how much Jesus was like, oh, all right, so tell me what you want me to do for you. But they knew exactly what they wanted. By the way, if God of the universe ever asks you, what do you want me to do for you? Think long and hard about that. And stop and think, what, are, what have you been asking him to do for you? Think about that for a minute. Now, they knew what they wanted him to do for them. Grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. <clears throat> Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. How many times have you heard the Holy Spirit say that to you? <laughs> Probably not as often as it's true. We don't know what we're asking. He says to them, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? Uh, throughout the Bible and Old Testament language, cup and baptism are not as we think of it now um, related to the Eucharist. Cup meant a deluge, like a, uh, <laughs> not just a sip. And uh, baptism was associated with being overwhelmed by disaster. When he referred to the cup and the baptism, they would understand the language of that as meaning deep suffering. So he asked them, are, are you able to do that? And their response, I love it. Yeah. Verse, 30, uh, verse um, 39. They said to him, we're able. Oh, I feel like <laughs> I was, as I was preparing, I didn't know if I'd share this, but it feels like a Brian Regan moment. I'm good under pressure. Bring it on, Jesus. I can handle any suffering. I can, I, you know what? Just let me be great. I can do this. Um, so they think they can take it. And, and Jesus delivers some pretty bad news to them. He says, um, the cup that I drink, yeah, you shall drink it. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized. So he's saying, you're, yeah. 
yeah, you guys are going to suffer. In fact, they both died on his behalf after, um, in later years. But then he goes on to say that, sit at my right, my left, this is not mine to give. It's for those to whom it's been prepared. In other words, he's like, that's not mine to give. So I can't help you with that request. But then what happens uh, is the other disciples, you keep reading, began to get indignant with James and John. This is a very strong word, incensed at a gut level. Now, where you think maybe they're... um, Were they just bummed that James and John beat them to it? I don't know. But they've been talking a lot about greatness. In fact, the few other times where Jesus already told them, I'm going to die, that was always the context for these conversations they had about, so who's the greatest? Who do you think Jesus likes the most? Who's mom and dad's favorite? Um, and, And it's easy to read this and think, Why were these guys so fixated on greatness? I'm going to get to that. But let's go ahead and read Jesus' answer so that I can make sure I get through this in time. Okay, we're doing good. Calling them to himself, all the disciples, so they're all angry at each other, he says to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it's not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What is absent in these verses is a rebuke of their desire for greatness. He didn't sit them down and say, stop thinking about greatness for crying out loud. That's not the point. He didn't do that. He didn't say, guys, come on. We've had a lot of talks about greatness. When are you going to let it rest? What he did was say, okay, all right, you guys want to be great? Let me tell you how to do it. The desire to be great is in every single one of us, and it is a God, I believe a God-given thing. It is something that is there, whether you are a 10-year-old girl in the mountains of China or a 90-year-old man, um, Somewhere in Oklahoma. I just pulled those randomly out. I don't know what I'm thinking. Um, <clears throat> James and John do a wonderful job of revealing every human heart. Everyone wants to be on top, to be esteemed, to be valuable. Really, to be worthy, to feel like I matter here. To feel like, I don't know, there's something that rises up in us that wants to be great. Um, and this is, you can thank David for this, because when I was first preparing for this sermon, all I could think about was how ludicrous this was. Like, why are they, um, why did they choose this moment, and why is this what they asked of him? And David said, isn't there something holy about this? 
And I totally was taken aback. What on earth is holy about these guys pulling Jesus aside and asking him to give them positions of greatness at a time when his life is almost over? And this is what, what David shared. He's like, isn't, isn't that what God calls to in each one of us? Like the boldness, this is our hunger. We all want to be great. And they knew who to go to. They knew because they'd given three years of their life to it, to this man, that if there was greatness in the world, it was, it was with him. It wasn't in the Jewish leaders. It wasn't in the fishing village, being fishermen. It was Jesus, and they wanted to be near him. Um, uh, okay, sorry, guys. He did redefine greatness for them, though. I think generally speaking, when we give our lives to Christ, our ideas of greatness change a lot, right? Um, just by virtue of receiving Christ and having his spirit live in you, I guarantee that those of you who have experienced that start to have your values rearranged without you doing much to do so. You just start to value family more. You just start to care more about um, things that you didn't maybe care about before. Maybe you did. But you get a sense that being the guy who gets the girl, being the guy who gets overpaid is not really what you want to live for in life. You want to live for Jesus. Um, in fact, one of the most common things to hear among the young um, people who want to follow Christ is a phrase that David and I know from our own past, and it's this, I want to do great things for God. Don't raise your hand, but how many of you, when you finally discovered how awesome God is and how much he loves you, thought, God, I just, I want to do great things for you. Use me. Use me in your kingdom. Like, I want to do this. This comes, I think, from the joy of the love and the zeal that Jesus pours into our hearts, and it is a beautiful and holy desire. And I know this, I'm pretty sure this was true for John. John is, um, of the two, James and John, John wrote, James did not write the book of James, but John did write the Gospel of John and the three letters from John. And what do we know about John from his letters? He thought a lot about love. In fact, he defined himself as the one who Jesus loved. I think it's Brenning Manning who um, challenges each of us, by the way, to learn to radically define ourselves the same way. Are you the one that Jesus loved? But anyway, John loved him so much, I think his desire to sit at his right hand was out of pure devotion. Like, I just, man, when you're in your kingdom, I, I don't know what's going to be going down, but I want to be right beside you. I want to be doing great things for you. If we can get past our desire to be rich, married, noticed, or cool. <laughs> Thank you for the laugh, that's true. Um, we can get to the deeper ache in our heart, the haunting desire to be great and do great things for God. 
I know as a 19-year-old girl, I sat in the front row at a conference and I heard a man named Paul Cox ask, um, do you have a sense of destiny about your life? And I wept because I did and I didn't know what to do with it. But I knew that I knew that I knew that there was something that God wanted me to do in this life. I'm going to skip. But what is greatness? When I asked Jesus to let me do great things for him, when I had that haunting desire, can I tell you I never pictured being a pastor's wife and a soccer mom. Uh, yes, I am a soccer mom. Um, I never pictured that. Um, and as a three-year-old, I sat around with my best friend Kim and dreamt of Africa. Throughout elementary school, we're going to go to Africa. Throughout college, I'm going to be an Olympian. Um, throughout college, I'm going to be a great writer. There were things that I pictured that I would do for God, and I had no idea what he would take me through and where he would take me and what greatness would look like. Greatness is not what we see in the world around us. I think we all know that, but doggone it, we do not live it. Just a short comment on uh, the phrases that Jesus uses here to describe the Gentiles. He said, they lord it over the people and they exercise authority over them. Lording it over comes from the root word for dominion. Can I just tell you there's only one Lord? Romans 14 says that Jesus died for this very purpose that he might be Lord of all. There is only one person, one Lord, who has dominion and needs dominion over your life. And if you are playing Lord in someone else's life, it's more what Paul's, uh, John's talking about here, or Mark, whoever we're talking about. Um, lording it over, it takes the word for dominion and strengthens it with a prefix to make it really strong. And in the Bible, when you find that Greek combination, katakurio, something like that, it's only used in three instances. Here, to describe the Gentile rulers lording it over people. It's used to describe the power of a demon over a man whom he possesses. And it's used to describe the wickedness of spiritual leaders who would use their spiritual authority to lord it over others. It's not very good company. Exercise authority is a little different. It comes from the root word for authority, which is not a bad thing. In fact, most of the references I found are where Jesus has given that authority to people. But Paul says, God gave me this authority so that I could build you up. Now take that word for authority, add a prefix to it, kata. It strengthens it, it intensifies it, and the word in this sense, kata, the prefix, is translated down. Authority down. Paul said, God gave me authority so I could build you up. And Jesus says, don't use the authority I give you to push others down. We one-up each other all the time out of insecurity and brokenness and the need in our hearts to be great, but it is not the way of Jesus. Greatness is available to everyone. Jesus said, whoever among you wants to be great. Thank God it's not dependent on looks or talents or wealth or ability 
right? There are very few people in this world who get that chance. Every single one of you can be great. It's to be the servant. Two words for servant here, servant and slave. Parallelism is very common in the Bible. A servant is someone who would stand at attention to provide a service. A slave was someone in bondage, like they had no choice. They're just a slave. Either way, you're doing what somebody else wants you to do, not what you want to do. Okay, here's the rub. I'm going to move through this. He says that you're to be the servant of all. That's really hard to do. Not just the people you love and like, but everyone. I'm going to come back to that in a little bit after we look at a video. But I want to tell you first what being a servant is not. Being a servant is not merely an outward thing. Though sometimes we have to choose to do menial things to learn this. If you give grudgingly, you will plant bitterness in your heart. This is not, the peace and the joy that comes from being a servant doesn't come when you do it because you think you should. Being a servant is not self-degradation. The person who says, I am nothing, I'm just dumb, I'm stupid, I don't even know why Jesus made me, I might as well just sit here and sweep the floor. I'm, I'm mocking that, but really I've thought those thoughts, so I'm not mocking you. Um, That simply isn't true, and that's not being a servant. David's going to talk about it next week, but a servant has everything and is everything, and so she gives. Being a servant is not having bad boundaries. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do for someone is not do what they've asked you to do or they want you to do, and it's not servitude. You are not a doormat for the Lord. Service is not something one human being can demand from another. And if there's anyone in here who's all focused on how another person is not serving you well, I guarantee you the problem is not outside yourself. Being how to describe a servant, though, it's easier. It's hard to define what it means to be a servant. It's easier to point to it. I don't know how to tell you what a servant is, but I can point to Jesus and say, watch him. There are people here at K2 that when I think of being a servant, I can point to them and say, watch them. That's what it looks like. Scores. I could tell you story after story, but we've chosen one story, one couple to honor, um, who we think really We can't think of anyone else who more lives out this principle of Jesus. Let's watch the video. I think of that verse in the Bible where it says, you know, where God says, you know, Jesus says, who will rise up? Who can I send? And they are the first one to say, it is me. I am there. And they have proven over and over and over again that their heart is just, they just want to serve. He's just a man that's got one of the strongest faces that I've ever seen, you know. And he's just a gentle giant, you know. They just, they blow me away. They are always available to people. 
Uh, regardless of the time of day, regardless of the need. Both of them, they just want to serve others. They have true Christian hearts. They're a great team. They're a good team together. When it comes to working together, they are on it together. I mean, the first thing I thought of was totally devoted. Her heart was just designed to love people. One word that comes to mind is compassion. A drive to, uh, uh, to care for people and uh, to do God's will. Just watching their journey with Christ from the day they walked into K2 to baptizing her in Honduras to just the way they become just a huge part of the life of K2 has been one of the greatest stories uh, that I've seen in the life of the church. How he talks to you and how, how he prays to Jesus, you know, it's just awesome. So I've always been told I have a servant's heart, but when I moved to Utah and met this couple, saw what a servant hearts look like and I have a long ways to go <laughs> we're like brother and sister but we're best friends and uh, I am just proud to call them friends no questions asked just you need the help you call you pick up a phone you show up day or night and they're willing to help I love that whenever there's a crisis they are the first to say send me Lord I'm here send me to the front line just that big heart. I think she loves so deeply because God loves so deeply. She loves God and and it just, His love just pours through her. I really can't count the number of times um, that they've been at our home serving us. I mean, I could go on for half an hour and, and, and not run out of stories because every time that they've been aware of any need, they've been there. Her attitude is, is never one of, that's impossible. It's always one of, what are we waiting for? Let's get it done. Strong, faithful, resilient, committed, beautiful hearts. They inspire me just to keep going, just giving of their heart and of their time. You know, they are there. And that's when I think, while I think of them, they are there. He'll give you the shirt off of his back or the last dollar in his pocket. I really love the way John and Melody love people and the way that they've loved me. John Anderson has meant a lot to my faith and and uh, how I walked with Christ in the last four years and spending time with him innocent. I am proud to um, call them my friends. I am honored to serve with them anytime they want call. And I am looking forward to serving alongside of them and representing the body of Christ alongside John and Melody Anderson. Call me anytime. My parents are just incredible people. I love them dearly. And I'm amazed every day how much further they can go in helping somebody out. Every day, every, every time I see them give more, it's a little bit more than last time and they give a lot. So they're just perfect. I am honored to be able to serve beside them. They're the best. What can I say? No one has served my family more and better than John and Melody Anderson. Uh, if you would ask me to, to name the people or a person that is really um, living their life serving Christ, John and Melody Anderson would be the first people that come to mind. Yeah.
It is so true. I can tell you this, Melody may be the first person to kick you in the butt, but she'll also be the first person to pick you up, dust you off, make sure you get going in the right direction. Um, precious, no one more kind. That said a lot about what it means to be a servant. Um, I think we know this, I think we feel this intuitively. One of the things that hits me is I don't think we realize that greatness, though, has so many different faces. Um, greatness of a servant. So many times when we talk about greatness, we don't believe that it can happen in obscurity. But I'm telling you, if Jesus is the one who calls you into obscurity, then that's the greatest place you can be and the greatest person you can be. When I was raised in support to be on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, I met people tucked away in homes, in rural places, teaching or working in a coal mine, whatever they were doing, who blew me away with their heart for God and what God was doing in them in that small place. He needs us everywhere. So when we talk about greatness, we have a hard time believing it happens in obscurity. And when we talk about servant-heartedness, I think we have a hard time believing that it happens on stage. But these people, the band, when they come up, my husband, who's up here week after week, Mike and Tammy, whoever shared, I have to tell you, to stand up here, to do the work before standing up here, to get yourself out of the way, to not care what people think about you, and to do the difficult task of studying to get to the point that where you're able to offer the Word of God to people without weirdness and mixed motives is a lot of work. And it is servant role. So whether you're a gifted teacher or you're called to intercession and nobody sees what you do in the closet, thank you. Every person in here who prays for me and my husband, thank you. It has so many different faces. But the reality is true service comes from a heart filled, filled with the Holy Spirit of God and the freedom that comes from knowing He is. I'm not going to take time to read this verse, but Jeremiah 31, he tells us that it, you know, in this new covenant, um, no, I am going to read it. In the new covenant, they will all know me from the least to the greatest. That's what God says in Jeremiah. I've been walking with Jesus. Well, I've given my heart to Jesus 34 years ago when I was a 13-year-old girl. But my cohort, Rachel Wilford, who gave her heart to Jesus seven years ago, I listened to her. She'll preach. <laughs> I don't know what you believe, but I believe that the Spirit of God in the hearts of men and women, whether they're a day old in the Lord or 50 years old in the Lord, they know Him. And He is the one who speaks. He is the one who serves. He is the only one who serves. Jesus said the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. Does it freak you out if I say the words, right now, God is here sitting with you, serving you.
That's what's true. He spun galaxies into space. And he prefers to sit with you in your seat and serve you. He's amazing. He gave his life for us. And he still does it every day through the hearts of men and women who give up their lives for each other. We're going to talk a lot more about being a servant, about how to become a servant. Um, Band, why don't you come on up? But in this in the series to come, um, we're going to talk a lot more about it. Uh, Andrew Murray says it this way in his book Humility, which, by the way, it's a tiny little book, but it will rock your world and it will take you 20 years to understand it. Um, He says that it's only in the possession of God that I can let go of myself. There's a word that people don't like because in our English language, it carries with it the idea of um, weakness, of frailty. It's the word meek. This is used in the Greek. If you're around me long enough, you will hear me talk about this word because I can't get over it. The word meek. When you think of meek, or we talk about the meek, the meek shall inherit the earth. Don't you think of just a tiny little person somewhere? Um, I know for women, if we've ever read 1 Peter 3, when we think of meek, we think of the quiet ones that don't have a lot to say. And for those of us that are louder, we think, oh, man, I guess I got to kiss that one goodbye. Um, But according to the Bible, I'm going to read it, just a phrase from Vine's Expository Dictionary. The meekness we see in Christ and that he commends to believers is the fruit of power. It is strength under it is strength under control. So, okay, let me check my time. I think I need to be done. I'm done. All right. <laughs> Sorry, band. Um, Sally's going to lead us in some worship. And two things I want. First, I want you to think about God and not yourself during this. Not what you want of Him, not what you're asking Him to think of Him. Um, But we're going to take our offering during the first song. You guys can come forward. Meekness, according to Scripture, has more to do with your heart toward God than how you behave around other people. In fact, it has very little to do with your disposition, your personality, or how you behave around people. Jesus used this word to describe himself. He said, I am meek. 
I can't think of a more powerful person in the universe. Can you? You better not be able to because he's kind of God in the flesh. Um, meekness starts with a heart that does not dispute with God or argue with him. And if I am having this vertical relationship where I'm like, okay, Jesus, I just love you. John and Melody Anderson just love him. They just love God. That's all it is. And whatever, they're just not going to wrestle with God. And you know what happens when you're not wrestling with God? Things don't bug you and you're able to serve. The best thing that reveals our hearts before God, according to the Bible, is what we're doing with our money. If you're visiting today, this is not the moment where we're going to ask you for money. <laughs> Please be our guests. If this is your home, this is an opportunity for worship, for you to examine your heart and say, am I ready to do whatever it takes to be the servant that God calls me to be? If I'm not ready to trust him with my money, I'm not ready to trust him with my life. Um, yeah, and as we worship, there'll be a lot of scripture on the screen, and I'm just trusting that the one who is serving you will speak to your hearts and let you know what it is he's saying to you in particular today. Thank you, guys.